Um, okay, and now we're going to get into the word. Before we do that, uh, let's lower the lights. We're going to, before we do the video, we can lower the lights. And we're going to be covering John 14, verses 1 through 6. And it's, uh, it's, it's dealing with heaven. And so I want to show you one of my favorite clips about heaven. Let's take a look. There you go, that's heaven. That's what happened to Lazarus. We're still going. Um, we'll, we'll stand in a minute for the reading of the word, but I have, I have one thing I wanted to share. It's a Churchill quote. Uh, I love Churchill quotes. And he said, um, I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. So... Uh, open up, if you would, to John 14. And if you don't have a Bible, these fine folks will give you one. Just raise your hand, they'll give you a Bible. John chapter 14. So we're going through the book of John. Now, before we stand, remember that chapters 13 to 17 is a 24 hour period that John is meticulously putting down. It's a 24 hour period. If the Bible were. If the Bible were to be written as meticulously as John has done chapters 13 through 17 for a 24-hour period, the Bible would be 15 times as large. Uh, John is taking great, going to great lengths to, to articulate everything that Jesus is doing in these last 24 hours before his crucifixion. And he's going to cover uh, for us, or will cover, uh, some of John's writing. And by the way, he's probably in his 90s writing this. Um, six verses that will not leave us the same. You came in here one way, you're going to leave another. And so uh, we're going to take a look at it. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1, Jesus speaking. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. I love this guy, Thomas, because if Jesus said that to me, I would have said the same thing Thomas said. Thomas said to him, Lord, we have no idea where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. (laughs) We don't know the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive and very intolerant. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Lord, we, we recognize that truth is intolerant. Two plus two is four. It's not three, even if we feel it should be three. And Lord, truth is intolerant of a lie. And Lord Jesus, you said, I am, I am. I alone encounter distinction to all others am the way, the truth, and the life. No man has ever come, no man is coming, or ever will come to the Father except through you, Lord. And so I ask that you would minister to us through these verses. And you touch every heart. I pray that you would bring comfort where there's a troubled heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would apply this to our lives, that we would receive all you'd have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. Uh, looking at this passage of scripture, what's fascinating to me is Jesus begins by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And, and it's a commandment. Don't let your heart be troubled. But what's fascinating about it is he says, your heart, your being plural, heart being singular. He's speaking to all of us, but he's speaking to you individually, me individually. And when he says, don't let it be troubled, it's, it's strange to me because as we've been studying the book of John, we've covered a few verses in particular. I wrote some of them down, John eleven thirty three, John 12, 27, John 13, 21. We've covered all those. And as you recall, uh, in those verses, especially when Lazarus was sick and dying, uh, Jesus, therefore, when Jesus saw uh, Lazarus' sister weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. In John 12, 27, when he was relating to the cross and speaking to the Father about the impending crucifixion, he said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. Jesus said again in, in John 13, 21, in, re- in reference to Judas, when Judas was going to betray him at the table. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It broke his heart. He was troubled. He's saying to us, don't be troubled. He was troubled. Is he a hypocrite? No. There was a, um, a conference called Seeds of Compassion that was held in Seattle, Washington, and they brought together all these religious leaders around the world. And the, um, they had Episcopalian and... And, and, and Jewish leaders and Muslim leaders, uh, the Dalai Lama was there, the holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama deity, they called him uh, your holiness. And I, I struggle with that. I mean, I, I don't have a thing against him. I'd, I'd greet him. I'd say, hello, Dalai. But I, <laughs> I, I, I was so looking forward to saying that. But they were trying to come to a consensus where we can all get together and, and, and you, know, all, you know, their idea was all roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. All roads, you know, and, and I agree with that. All roads lead to God. I, I fully agree with that. But only one leads to heaven. The Bible says you'll, it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. You'll stand before God regardless of what you believe and you'll give an accounting of your life. And if you say... God says, why should I let you into heaven? You'll say, because I'm a good person or I've, I've done all these things or I've done all those things. God says, that, that doesn't cut it. 
The only thing that lets you in is my son's righteousness is put on your account. You've received it by faith. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me but by my son. I sent my only son to die for your sins. You received that gift by faith. His righteousness is imputed, put on your account. And, and, and so all roads lead to God, but only one leads to heaven. That's, that's not my words. Those are Jesus' words. When he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, I alone encounter distinction to all others. That's the statement in the Greek. There's no room, and that's the one C.S. Lewis said is the trilemma. You have to believe God is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no other option. He's Lord. He was either a liar where he knew he wasn't the only way, but he lied and told everybody he was, or he's a lunatic. He believed he was, but he wasn't, or he's Lord. And he is Lord, and he's the only way. And there's one truth. And you say, well, that's so intolerant. Again, Truth is always intolerant of a lie. Counterintuitive to all other claims. Jesus rose from the dead. The grave is empty. If you can disprove the resurrection, I'll, I'll quit Christianity. You can't. Even through cross-referencing and historical documentation, you just can't do it. And we look at this, and, and we have to make a decision, and we have to come to a place. And in the Seeds of Compassion conference, everyone's just trying to get along. And, and I've been to an interfaith gathering, and, and I like it because what I notice in an interfaith gathering is they exchange the truth for the sake of what they call grace, so they can all try to get along. And you go into a room with an interfaith council, and everyone's real friendly, and they're kind, but the minute you, you, you establish a distinction, there's going to be tension. You establish a distinction, there will be tension. And so if you want to sit in the room, you just kind of have to not establish a distinction, otherwise you're not welcome. And the idea is everyone just has to let it all go, and just put it in a mush pot. And <clears throat> this is what happened at the Seeds of Compassion Convention, and thousands of teenagers gathered in Seattle, Washington, that all these religions would come together and coexist. And, and at this convention, there was, uh, they, were, they were doing question and answer. They had a panel up there, and one of the speakers was a guy named Rob Bell, who uh, up until recently was, seemed to be orthodox in his, in his beliefs of, of Christian beliefs, but is strayed. Um, I don't know him personally. I'm not going to make a judgment call, but I will say his response to a, a young boy, his name was Joshua, he's 14 years old, and, and he stands up in front of the, the, the moderator and he says, you know, I've, I've been wayward from my Christian walk. I, I, I'm just kind of lost. I'm not sure what to do. And the moderator says, you know, Rob, you've got a, a large following. Pastor Bell, why don't, why don't you address this young man? And he, he looks at the young man and he says, you know, your problem, son, is that you're, 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 more, you're, you're overly concerned with the destination and you need to be more concerned with the journey. Focus on the journey, not the destination. That was his advice. And then he sat down. And, and as I watched that video, the emptiness and, and the hollowness of his comment, you know, this is what Jesus is describing. He's saying, let not your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I tell the truth, the Lord says. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And of course, Thomas would struggle with that. What Jesus is saying, not in contradiction to his own life, because as we covered those three verses in chapter 11, 12, and 13, he was troubled. And here's, here's what he was troubled by, death. Death is troubling. Betrayal is troubling. Judas broke his heart. 
Lazarus caused him to weep. When he considered the misery and the pain of the cross, it broke his heart. Death is troubling. Life is troubling. And if it's a journey, it is a miserable journey. And you, Rob Bell, go and try and say that to our Christian brothers and sisters being beheaded. It's all about the journey. Are you kidding me? You know their hope is they're, they're on the shores of the Mediterranean getting ready to have their, their heads lopped off? Their hope is eternal. They have the destination in mind. Their lambs silent to the slaughter. They're unwavering. And they stand in confidence and strength in the midst of a troubling journey. Life is hard. Now granted, in our Western world, we try to get through life in the journey, avoiding as much trouble as possible. And if people are difficult, we just avoid them. And we surround ourselves with happiness. And if you're difficult, I don't want to be around you. And we just, you know, and I, I go to yoga, and then I go and I eat the organic, and I, and that's all good. That's all good. Obviously, you can see I'm not doing that. <laughs> that's all good. And, and, and it's the journey, and you, you just sit and contemplate what is the sound of one hand clapping. I can answer that for you. Pretty good, huh? Two, one hand. Okay, never mind. And you think it's the journey, and we're on this to discover ourselves and to find ourselves. Any, and I told this to my son at 13 years of age, son, and I took him to the cemetery, and I said, you always begin with the end in mind. This was on his walkabout. You're going from a boy to a man, and you begin with the end in mind. Son, this is the way of all flesh. It ends in a cemetery, and you will stand before God. War doesn't increase death. It expedites it, but it doesn't increase it. Disease and famine doesn't increase death. It expedites it, but it doesn't increase it. Everyone in the room will die. And you begin with the end in mind. Well... I'm just going to get on the Starship Enterprise and go into space, and it's going to be good, good, I guess. Odd. But to stand before God and say that there is a creator. Now, to get on the Starship, you've got to dismiss God. You've got to dismiss, you know, um, uh, the idea of, of the universe being governed by God. You have to dismiss order and absolutes. <laughs> The sun rises and the sun sets, and you say, well, that's just um, that, that's by chance. And that we all evolve by chance. And, and you go, wait, what? You know, it's like walking along and, and seeing a watch on the ground with leather straps. And you go, that just happened. It just, it just happened. No, that watch speaks of intelligent design. You say, no, 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 no. You see, what happened was, there was a cow that walked along and the, and the lightning hit it. It just burned the straps and fell out. And then a bird came over and pecked the holes. And, the, and, then, and, then, and then a bird came and sewed a string that he had uh, gotten from a spider's web. And, and then the bezel was at heat and then wind blowing and then thousands, billions, billions, billions of years. And then, and then the glass bevel was... And then the intricacy of, of the dials, it, it, trust me, give me some time here, billions, add more. And, and then it just, it just happened. And you look at that person and go, you're an idiot. I, I, 
well, God doesn't exist. I've never seen him. I never saw the designer or the creator of that watch. But I can tell by the design that there's a creator. There's order in the universe. Intelligent design. And, and so here we are, and we're left with this idea that we stand before him and give an accounting of our life. Now, I have to tell you, just like C.S. Lewis, if there, if there was a doctrine I would dismiss and try to avoid, if I, had, if I had the chance to rewrite the Bible, I would dismiss the doctrine of hell. I, I sat with, you know, my Mormon friends when I was in Salt Lake City, and uh, we were there for political purposes, and I'm sitting at the table, and, and a dean of a major seminary is, is agreeing with the, the dean of religious studies at BYU that, you know, they're, they're equal in their orthodoxy. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're supposed to be representing the evangelical community. We're not the same. And, and a major pastor here in our community is agreeing with the seminary president and, and they're having a kumbaya over there and I'm next to another evangelical minister and I turn over to my, my Mormon friend and I, I look at him and I say, do you agree with, with the professor of religious studies? Is this your doctrine? He goes, no, I don't agree with it. I said, well, this guy right here, I don't agree with him. So we're in agreement that we disagree with them. And, and, I, and, I, and I looked and I said, Here's, you guys have three heavens and no hell. I got a heaven and a hell. Yours is a way easier sell. I said, but to, to have that, you have to dismiss, you have to dismiss what C.S. Lewis pointed out, that the doctrine of heaven, scripture fully endorses it. Excuse me, the doctrine of hell, scripture fully endorses it. it, it I mean, no one spoke more of hell than Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there. And Christendom has held that this is a doctrine from its very beginning. And, 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 and it has the support of reason itself. If there's good, there's evil. And so as we look at this and, 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 and we go, okay, in my father's house, he's speaking of heaven. Now the, contra- the, the opposite is hell. Some of you say, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, the scriptures speak of it. You have to dismiss the scriptures. You have to dismiss all of Orthodox Christianity because you don't want a hell to exist. But Jesus died to keep you from there. I think of this idea of hell I uh, I wrote this down. This is a picture of heaven right here, and I wanted to read this to you. This is a picture of hell. This account was written, and I want to get it right, Dr. Maurice Rawlings. He is a specialist in cardiovascular disease at the Diagnostic Center and area hospitals in Chattanooga, graduated with honors from George Washington University Medical School. He served in both the Army and the Navy, became chief of cardiology at the 97th General Hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. He was promoted to personal physician at the Pentagon for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, staff, which included Generals Marshall, Bradley, and Dwight Eisenhower, before he became President of the United States. In civilian life, Dr. Rawlings was appointed to the National Teaching Faculty of the American Heart Association, specializing in teaching methods for retrieval of patients from sudden death. He taught at various medical schools and hospitals, conducted courses for doctors and nurses. His whole, it goes on and on. You can look up his name, Dr. Maurice Rawlings. You can read all about him. He wrote a book. And this book that he wrote was what moved him to become a Christian. It was one episode. I'm going to recount it for you. This is what caused him to become a Christian. All of the cases of near-death experiences I had heard about and all the resuscitation we had taught in many countries had been good experiences until one day I ran across a negative experience. It was because we started the interview whilst we were resuscitating the patient in the heat of battle. 
This was a 47-year-old man, a U.S. mail carrier, exercising on the treadmill to reproduce this chest pain he complained about while doing exercise at home. Instead of just getting the pain, his EKG went haywire and he dropped dead, moving the treadmill which swept him off like uh, so much trash. The other doctors had left the building, but the nurses were still there and knew what to do. One started an IV, the other breathing with an AMBU bag and more aesthetic than mouth-to-mouth. Uh, I was doing the external heart compressions and the patient kept saying, doctor, don't stop. And when I would stop to reach for something, he would say, I'm in hell again. Most patients would say, take your big hands off. You're breaking my ribs. I knew something was wrong. He had a complication whereby he, uh, we had to put a pacemaker down his collarbone vein right there on the floor. It had a big effect on me. Blood was spurting everywhere. I was pushing and I told him to shut up and not to bother me with this hell business. I was trying to save his life, and he was trying to tell me about some nefarious nightmare he's had in the death throes. That's what I thought until he kept saying it. The nurses gave me that look as if to say, this is a dying man's wish. He then asked me something that was the ultimate insult, which was, doctor, pray for me. I told him him that he was out of his mind. I wasn't a minister. Again, he asked me to pray for him, and the nurses were still looking at me with anticipation, so I did. I made up a make-believe prayer, a a, a nonsense prayer. I just wanted to get him off my back, so I told him to say it after me. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Go on, say it. Please keep me out of hell. Say it. And if I live, I'm, on the, uh, I'm, I'm off the hook. I'm yours forever. I remember that part well because he's been off the hook ever since. He's a firm Christian man. Each time of interrupted CPR to adjust the pacemaker, he would convulse, turn blue, stop breathing. His heart would stop beating, and I'd reach over and start him up again. Every time I'd let go, he'd be back in hell. After I said this prayer, there were no more more, uh, writhing experiences, no more negative fighting attitude. He was calm. I asked him the next day to tell me about being in hell. I told him he had frightened the nurses to death and he had scared the hell out of me. He said, what hell? And after the prayer you gave, I remember seeing my mother when she was living, although she had died when I was three years old. Impossible. He picked her out of a photograph album his aunt brought the next day, but he had never actually seen her. He identified her from her clothing. He had seen her in heaven. What apparently happened was that he had sublimited the hell experience to painless parts of his memory. But after the conversion, he had, a heaven, he had heaven experiences. That nonsensical prayer I prayed to humor him not only got that man converted, but it also converted me. We both became born-again Christians. You, you can read that on your own. Now, contrast that with this one. And I'll, I know you guys aren't familiar with me reading a lot, but... Uh, Jonathan Edwards in the, uh, I think it was the first great awakening in in the 1700s in America, uh, you you had Whitfield, George Whitfield, and a number of others. And uh, Gilbert Tennant was equal to Edwards and uh, Whitfield in this this great awakening. And they had started a kind of a seminary called the Log Cabin College. And uh, this Log College ended up becoming Princeton University. And they, they said it was the closest thing uh, to the school of prophets. That's what George Whitfield said. He, he said what, what occurred and, and the, the revival that occurred out of this school of teaching was phenomenal. Well, Gilbert Tennant was the pastor. He had a number of sons, but his youngest son, William Tennant Jr., uh, ended up um, having a, a, an experience of death. And, and I'll read this to you. While I was conversing with my brother, he said, on the state of my soul and the fears I'd entertained for my future welfare, I found myself in an instant in another state of existence under the direction of a superior being who ordered me to follow him. So if you read the story and you can find it, William Tennant Jr., he goes into this catatonic state 
And for three days, they, they, they assume he's dead. His eyes are sunken. His, there's no breathing. There's no movement, no pulse, nothing. And they've given up, and they're getting ready to bury him. And, and he comes to. And, and this is, I won't read through the whole thing, but he said, um, I beheld it at a distance, an uh, ineffable glory, the impressions of which on my mind is impossible to communicate to mortal man. I immediately reflected on my happy change and thought, well, blessed be God, I am safe at last, notwithstanding all my fears. I saw an innumerable host of happy beings surrounding the inexpressible glory and acts of adoration and joyous worship. But I did not see any bodily shape or representation in the glorious appearance. I heard things unutterable. I heard their songs and hallelujahs of thanksgiving and praise with unspeakable rapture. I felt joy, unutterable and full of glory, and then applied to my conductor and requested leave to join the happy throng on which he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must return to earth. This seemed like a sword through my heart. In an instant, I recollect to have seen my brother standing before me, similar to uh, Scrat, um, uh, standing before me, disputing with the doctor. The three days during which I had appeared lifeless seemed to me not more than 10 or 20 minutes. The idea of returning to this world of sorrow and trouble gave me such a shock that I fainted repeatedly. He added, such was the effect on my mind of what I had seen and heard, that if it is possible for a human being to live entirely above the world and the things of it, for some time afterwards, I was that person. The ravishing sound of the songs and the hallelujahs that I heard and every word uttered were not out of my ears when awake for at least three years. And then he said, for three years, the sense of divine things continued so great and everything else appeared so completely vain when compared to heaven that could I have had the world for stooping down for it, I believe I should not have thought about doing it. He was instrumental in the great awakening. His whole life was transformed by that experience. There's a heaven, there's a hell. Whether you believe it or you don't, that's like saying, you know, I I don't believe in gravity. Well, it doesn't matter. Gravity doesn't care. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And, And in this place, when Jesus says, in my father's house, it's another way of saying, it's a home. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in me or you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And what he's saying is, death is troubling. The journey is troubling. But if you have the destination in mind, it will settle your soul in the course of your life. You know where you're going. You know, I remember leaving Tulane University after not doing well and wanting to leave there. I got in the car with my friend Jess, and my girlfriend was awaiting me in San Diego, my family and surf and my car and Coronado. And New Orleans was a sweat box. It was miserable. I hated every day I was there. I hated the coach. I hated everything I had to do in New Orleans. And I got to tell you, the drive, I, I think it was 10. I don't remember what freeway it was. We drove continually without sleeping. We would just switch. And I would stay awake because I was so excited about the destination. And when I arrived, it was so much better than where I was. And the destination matters. And what Jesus is saying, you can endure the trouble of this world by keeping the mind of your, uh, you, can, you can endure the troubles of, of this world in the journey <clears throat> by keeping your mind on the destination to come. And, and what I love about this idea is there's three things that Jesus points out. First, he says, trust in my presence in your life. This is the cure to your troubles. Trust in my presence in your life. Trust in my promises and trust in me. Trust in my presence, trust in my promise, and trust in me. And and when he says this idea of heaven, if you study heaven throughout the scriptures, you find a number of terms. One is it's a country, which speaks of the vastness of heaven. It's a city, 
which indicates a large number of inhabitants. It's a kingdom indicating that there's governmental authority, there will be structure. And it also calls it a paradise, which speaks of beauty and desirability. It's a stunning place. And when you look at the intensity of what is described, it is something that we should look forward to. It's called my father's house. I love that about heaven, my father's house. It's a concept of being home. Now, for some of us, home isn't a pleasant place. Just like speaking of a heavenly father. Some of you struggle with the image of a father. In the pure sense of the word, finding those connections, that's what you focus on. Uh, For those of you who struggle, what is a home? Home is a place where you can be yourself. Home is where you can take off your, your tie and kick off your shoes, right? Your high heels, whatever. Home is where you can say what you're thinking. Not always. Home is where you're always accepted and loved in a good home. You're not just a guest. You live there. You're home. I love my home. I, I've traveled all over the world. I can't wait to get home. My dad used to say that as a military officer. There's no place I want to travel to. I love being home. I come home, and Michelle says, let's go out. I want us to just stay here. I'm home. I love being home. Wherever Michelle is, that's where home is, so I go with her. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you to my father's house. It'll be your home too. I'm going I'm to bring you home to my dad's house. You'll be part of the family. You'll be where you belong. That's heaven. If you think about heaven, most of us is already there. I mean, I think about my mom being there. My name's already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My citizenship is there. You know, I travel to other countries. I can't wait to get home. I don't bring all my possessions and put them up in the hotel room. My, my home is in Newberry Park. But my citizenship is in heaven, and I'm storing treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Thieves will not break in and steal. That's, that's what I do every Sunday. The only thing I can take to heaven with me is you. I can't take any of my possessions. I'm, I'm taking the greatest thing God has. That's you. I implore you every Sunday, I I, I ask you to make a decision that your name too would be written in the Lamb's book of life. My inheritance is there. More importantly, my Savior is there. My God is there. So much of me is already there. I long to be there. I'm 51. I I know I'm past the halfway point. I just don't see 102 in my future. Some of you are going, well, you're negative. Whatever. (laughs) You know, in, um, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul talks about taking off this tent and, and looking to our builder and maker t- for this, this, this home. And he speaks of a body in some respects. You know, this, this mansion that God is building for speaks of many rooms. And, and it took God seven days to create the heavens and the earth. For 2,000 years, he's been preparing my home, yours. Not just a home, a mansion. Now, for those of us who are materialistic, you know, I, we're not, we're not going to need bedrooms because we're not going to sleep. Uh, I don't think we'll need a refrigerator because there won't be anything rotten. Nothing's going to die. Food is going to be trippy and delicious. Um, you, you won't stink, so you won't need a bathroom or, you know, whatever else you do there. I'll just leave that alone. <laughs> we won't have to worry about getting old and sick. I'm excited about that. You know, the Lord is is pointing out that we just trust him. We just trust him. But even though death is troubling, 
The idea of heaven is it's the inconsolable longing of our heart, as C.S. Lewis said. There's one thing you can always bank on, and that's the destination. God is saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. He wants us to focus on this idea of heaven because it comforts us on the earth in our current state. Now, we're limited in time, so I want to close with this idea. When Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. Now, some of you right now, like Thomas, would say, I'm not sure I know the way. I don't know where he's going. We've taken time to explain it. Heaven is in the presence of God Almighty. Everything that God is, heaven is. Everything that God isn't, hell is. God is love. God is goodness. God is light. God is joy. You'll you'll be completely known as you're known. you'll, You'll finally understand yourself. You'll understand others. Relationships will be fascinating. They'll be unbelievable. It, take a Randy Alcorn book. It's, it's a thick one and read about heaven. I remember when my friend Bob Gainsley, who made this with the, the kids in our church, he went to be with the Lord. I was by his bedside. I'd be with him and I would read through this book on Randy Alcorn on heaven. He was fascinated by it. His mind was set. He endured unbelievable trouble. The sickness was awful. But his joy was evident. We're going to face trouble, but we're in it together. We have the same destination. Let's work together. Let's encourage one another. Spur one another on to good works and encourage each other in this process because the destination is all ours. And like Thomas, some of you may say this morning, I don't know where Jesus is going. I don't know where you're going, Rob. How can I know? What's the way? How do I get there? Some of you want to dismiss it. You took some, some comparative religion class in your junior college. You, you've never read the scriptures, but based on what some teacher said, you have dismissed the claims of Christ. Cultures have been transformed by, by the simplicity of the scripture. The most, the most quoted text of our founding fathers was the Bible. The nation you live in was founded by the understanding of the truths within the text. And you just dismiss it because you went to community college. Oh, you watched a zeitgeist little clip. Oh, you're brilliant. But you haven't done any homework. You, you, you've, you've, you've just been drinking the Kool-Aid. And you say, no, yours is Kool-Aid. Let's contend. You bring all yours, I'll bring mine. Let's sit. Christ made the claim. I didn't. We have to deal with the claim. Thomas asked, what is the claim and how do I get there? Jesus made it real simple to Thomas and he makes it simple to all of us. He says, Thomas, listen, I, and the word I in the Greek is I alone countered a distinction to all others. Mary Baker Eddy, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, Joseph Smith, whatever. I alone encountered distinction to all others am the way. The, distinct, no other. Not a, I am the way. I 
alone encounter distinction to all others and the truth. I alone encounter distinction to all others and the life. And no man comes to the Father. And the word comes means no man has ever come, is coming, or ever will come to the Father except through me. So there you go, Thomas. You can't say no one ever told you. But you have to deal with what Jesus said. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. But I want to leave you with this last thought. What awaits you when you die? What are you hoping on? Nothingness? This going back. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. You you didn't even create it. You don't even know what nothing is. Even if you describe, you say nothing is, and you're using the adjective to be. You don't even create, you, 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 you form and shape. You say, well, I created this. You, you use God's matter. He made it. You know, uh, how did we get here? Well, it was a big bang. Okay, who lit it? Well, it was aliens. Okay, let's go to the aliens. Who brought them? Well, I don't know. Let's go further back. How, how, how crazy do you want to make this? There is a God, and you are not him. And he is giving you the way and the truth and the life. And he alone, in counterdistinction to all others, has made this claim. And he says, I'm ready to give you life. This is the most chaotic service I've been... It's like popcorn. Everybody's getting up and moving. Let's stay seated for right now. This is critical. God says to you, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. That requires faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. You need to believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you believe in God, believe also in Jesus because he's the way to the Father. And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. He's saying, it's home and I want to bring you home with me. And what's fascinating about that statement is there's only one time in the scripture where Jesus exerts his will over the fathers. John 17, 24, in the King James Version, he says, Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. God, I want these folks to be with me in my house. I want them to come home. Lord, I want you to graft them in. People say, well, Natasha's adopted. She's always been my daughter. She was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery. (laughs) Took 12 years. She was over 100 pounds. She's my girl. I love her just as much as all my kids. You can't convince me otherwise. And every time I see her and the love I have for her is the love God has for you and me. And he wants us home. I will, Father, that they be with me. I leave you with this story. A few years ago, Dave Galloway told uh, told of a soldier who returned from Vietnam. His parents were socialites, very well-to-do. It was near Christmas and they were getting ready to go out to the first round of parties of the Christmas season. Just then the phone rang and it was their son on the phone. Mom, 
He said, I'm back in the States. She said, that's wonderful. Where are you? Will you be home for Christmas? Can you get here in time for the parties? Everyone will love to see you. He answered, yes, I can be home for Christmas, but I, I want to ask you something first. What is it, she asked. Well, I have a friend with me from Vietnam. Can he come? Oh, of course, she answered. Bring him along. He'll enjoy the parties too. Wait a moment, mom, he said. I need to explain something about him. He was terribly wounded, lost both his legs and one arm. His face is disfigured too. There was silence on the phone for a while, and then the mother said, that's all right, bring him home for a few days. No, mom, you don't understand. He has nowhere to live. He has no one else. I want to bring him home to let our home be his home. The mother was quiet again, and she said, son, that just wouldn't do. What you're asking would be very unfair to us. Why, it would disrupt our lives. I'm sure there are government agencies that would be more than glad to take charge of him. Look, just you hurry home for Christmas now, and then maybe you can visit him once in a while. Darling, I'm sorry, but we've got to rush or we'll be late for the party. Call us again as soon as you know when you'll be home. When the parents returned from the party that night, there was an urgent message from the California police asking him to call. They telephoned and the officer said, I'm very sorry to have to call you, but we have just found a young soldier dead in a motel room. His face is disfigured and he has lost both legs and one arm and from the documents on him, he would appear to be your son. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me would be with me where I am. God wants you to come home. He's been preparing a place for you ever since you stepped foot on this earth. And he's made a way. And it's Jesus. In counterdistinction to every other claim made, no one will ever love you as much as the Lord. He wants you home. I'm going to give you a chance to receive him. It's real simple. You just say like the the Ethiopian eunuch, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he's my savior. Lord, I want to come home. Give me a longing for the destination in this troubled journey. And he will. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, there's this act of faith that comforts every human heart to respond to this gift God's extending to you. And I always make it a point of contact that you never forget this day. And if your memory fails you, I'll be there to remind you. The Lord says, if you testify before man, I'll testify before my Father in heaven. I'll be the witness. I'm going to ask you to respond in faith by doing one simple thing in a moment. I'm going to say, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, you want your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you want to have your eyes on the destination in this troubling journey, the acknowledgement of faith in a moment will be to raise your hand, that's all. I won't make a spectacle of you. This is just an act of faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I ask you right now, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Raise your hand. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. 
God bless you over here. God bless you. Bless you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for those who come home. Lord, we may be disfigured. We may have messed up our life, but you want us home. Your righteousness is put on our account and our sins have been forgiven. And we're your children. Lord, thank you that we're part of your family. And in this troubling journey, our eyes are on the destination. And our hearts are not troubled because we know where we're going. May that truth strengthen you from this day forward and forevermore until we all meet in glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's clap for those who gave their heart to the Lord.